Walking through the front checkout area, I made my way to the customer service desk, where I asked a middle-aged black woman for an application. Her name tag said Rhonda. She was kind of like the slightly overweight black woman in every movie. Sassy attitude, lowered eyelids, and judgmental aura. But basing a first impression on her physical appearance really wasn't a fair thing to do. I mean, how can you judge someone simply by... You applying for a job dressed in blue jeans and a white shirt, child? When she said this, I was actually glad my gut was right. And I wasn't some prejudiced asshole. Well, not completely, anyway. death sentence uh okay you made us do this like this is the long-awaited patreon exclusive 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 episode where we were forced to read the worst book that we could think of uh it, the book was supermarket by bobby hall aka also known as logic the rapper um uh and in case you're wondering yes uh, that logic, the rapper, in case you somehow were like, it can't, Bobby Hall, I recognize that. And then Gareth says logic, and you go, the rapper, and Gareth goes, the rapper. And you go, maybe there's another logic, the rapper. There isn't, it's that one. Yeah. I mean, there are probably like 50 uh, white rappers uh, who are called logic, and like at least 47 of them have once said, my rhymes are mathematical. Um, he seems to be exactly that guy. I, I, I know none of his music. I, I have only ever heard him rap in the uh, end of an episode of Rick and Morty, which is mentioned about, what was it, four times in this book? It's, uh, it's about four times, right? Yeah, it's, um, I lost track. Uh, once he brought it up the second time, I was like, oh, this is going to be, it was, it was bad enough when he mentioned that he was in an episode of Rick and Morty the first time in this novel, but then when it mm. happened a, a second time, I, uh... Yeah, I, I think... Uh, psychic Decay? Is, is that is that a good way to describe it? Psychic Decay? It, 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 it is. It, it's... So, something I was thinking about with this novel um, is the... Um, the, the practice of labeling uh, nuclear waste um, because nuclear waste uh, takes an incredibly long time to decay. It will still be deadly um, tens, if not millions of years into the future. So in order to uh, label nuclear waste, you can't just like say danger. This is radioactive because 10,000 years from now, who's going to maybe no one's going to speak English or even use letters People in the future could be Stone Age scavengers, or they could be so different from us as to be as we are from like dolphins. So, various people from various disciplines have collectively come together to try and figure out ways they can label nuclear waste sites so that radically different humans in the future will still understand that uh, they are, that it's going to kill them we actually um, have um there's a really good 
um, there's actually a lot of good articles about this, but the one in specific that I'm most familiar with is Eugene Thacker actually wrote about this. In he did? The first, oh, that's, yeah, that's lit. In the, in the first volume of his Horror of Philosophy um, set of books, he has a, which was the first book was more a compendium of papers and articles he'd written around the topic with the second and third book being deliberately written for a series. Mm. Um, and in that first compendium one, he has a paper that he wrote about this specific thing. And Warren Ellis has written about it on his blog. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a, it's so, been it's, a well-known thought experiment, but like practical thought experiment. Cause we sometimes think about thought experiments as like Zeno's mm. arrow or, you know, whatever, like they're meant to illustrate a point, but this is a very practical, yeah. like, it could save lives in the future. And I mean, it, it's not of direct relevance to us now because these are, these are hypothetical lives could be very different from us many years from now. There was also a brilliant, amazing uh, novella, novella uh, written last year called um, uh, The Only Harmful Great, uh, The Only Harmful Great Thing by Brooke Bollander. Um, I think it won a Hugo. It, it did covered that it did yeah and it yeah. should have it it should still be winning hugos it should be winning hugos many years into the future because it's so good she's a brilliant author um that covered this and yeah so one of so a bunch of the ideas that people have had for labeling nuclear waste is um basically build these like lovecraftian cities like riley but build like uh crazy stone obelisks or or build like really disgusting like front cover of a metal album looking architecture it's like the uh it's uh, very similar to that um the linguistic thought experiment i think it's like kiki and bobo uh, i forget the exact things but it's you get two shapes so one is blobby and one is spiky oh, yeah. and you get two names one is yeah, like which kiki, is kiki and one is bobo is... and you're and yeah. like and the is obviously kiki yeah. Um, using that same kind of thought process to go like, oh, the the sp spiky equates to dangerous in our brain in some way. So you put mm. it around something dangerous so that it's a nonverbal way to communicate um, uh, potential danger. Yeah, and um, a, 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 a series of extremely large spikes emer emerging from the ground is actually one of the ideas for phys physical markers that you can put there. Uh, you could also make um, a landscape of forms, a uh, big rubble landscape, forbidding blocks. That was the kind of uh, Lovecraftian thing. Or, or just an enormous black hole made of basalt or black concrete or obsidian or something. Um, but we have a new idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's just <laughs> to record, um, well, to use the existing recording of... Um, that's the, the book Supermarket by Bobby Hall, a.k.a. also known as Logic, uh, a rapper. Um, somehow make a nuclear-powered like speaker that can be constantly playing, constantly reciting uh, the text of Supermarket by Bobby Hall, a.k.a. also known as Logic. And hopefully it will, it will stir something. Even if a completely different humanoid animal in the future, this book will will hopefully stir something deep in their like race memory and they will realize that this is the most abhorrent most abject thing that could possibly exist they and will hear it and they will think once this caused pain 
I should avoid. Yeah. This is not a place of honor. It's not a book of honor. No highly esteemed deed is written in there. Nothing of value is in this book. It, it is dangerous and repulsive to us. It's, um, the danger is still present. You could still go out and read this book or uh, do what I did, which is the absolute worst thing you could have done with this book, which is to get the audiobook version and listen to it. I would work. rather kill myself. Yeah, this has been a tough week. It's, it's the first week of a new job, and for a good chunk of it, I was listening to Bobby Hall do black voice. And um, does he yeah. does he actually do that in the audiobook? Yeah. Oh, he that does. sucks. Yeah, oh, he, that sucks a lot. <laughs> so one of the many, many uh, abhorrent things about this book is um, there's maybe three or four black characters and they get some sort of, it's a hate crime. It's like some sort of Song of the South level portrayal of black people. There, there's a, it, a it, black it's woman interesting. Sassy and she says, oh, Lord, the white people gone done, did it again. Uh, there's... It, it's interesting because he's, so famously, uh, if you listen to Logic, you will hear, of course, his tragic mulatto tale. Um, th these are sometimes his own words. Um, uh, which is uh, alarming and strange, uh, but so he he is he is bl uh, part black. He is he is black heritage. Um, he is black. I'm not sure exactly how to how to parse that. I'm not going to pretend to know as a white person. That's not not my place. But so it has a completely different affect reading him doing that versus say the famous incident of Barack Obama, who who was also um, a mixed race man has obviously a black heritage, um, is black, grew up in Chicago, um, and famously recorded his own audiobook where uh, where he was writing his autobiography and also uses the, the Scarecrow's black voice, but um, in a way that felt authentic. Like, it, it felt like him reflecting this real part of his, um, of his heritage, this real part of part of his upbringing that, like, he can't, he can't and wouldn't erase because it's as much a part of him as, as his white mom and his, his white side and things like that. And from what you're describing, uh, I got this impression, of course, from reading it, but apparently from hearing it, it also feels like a weird self-directed audio hate crime. Oh yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's really offensive. I mean, even if he's, yeah, he, even if he's mixed race, this is still, uh, yeah, it, it still reads as massively offensive. Um, yeah, the, the, and the use of the N-word in this, I mean, I don't know if... Like, okay, if <laughs> this is a, a, a bad metric and way of doing it. I'm, I'm just looking at a picture of uh, Bobby Hoy here, Logic, on the, um, on the Wikipedia now. Like, if I met this guy and he said the N-word to me, I would be angry at him because he, he, looks, he looks white. And that's a, a lousy metric, whereas Barack Obama looks black. Those are really crappy metrics to work on. But, you know, the only other metrics are like blood quantums and stuff and weird skull measuring things. This is, he, he's a guy who could, who could pass as white and would therefore receive white privilege and all that stuff. Yeah, the standard, uh, uh, the standard questions of passing, which were uh, developed by a black social theorist, 
specifically to address the issue of colorism, um, which is uh, a major component that affects uh, mixed race people um, and also intra-black uh, friction and tension. Because you have, you have terms that come from um, black American constructions of race specifically for black uh black people things like being red bone or high yellow or things like that referring to um the 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 density of of the color of your blackness and how that can sometimes affect uh social standing that that's that's a very complex um a substantially complex issue that especially mm. as two white people we're not going to pretend <laughs> the experts on that shit don't go to us for it we're not even just just I don't know why like, someone would come to us as experts. Yeah, in that, this. that'd be insane. Um, <laughs> I would highly discourage you from asking either one of us to elaborate on that in any fruitful metric. But um, logic, at least, has been uh, ha has faced criticism about that. Um, also, from members of the black community um, for the way that he plies uh, his his background in a way that. Um, can feel and read as somewhat exploitative, even if it's a lived thing. Yeah, it, in, in the book, it is. It I I would defy anyone to read it and not not have it come off as offensive, especially the audiobook. Like he he is he's he has a white voice for what that means, and he does the offensive black voice that you know we could all do, but we're not going to do right now. So, I mean, that, that's, and this is just part one. I mean, even if we somehow, because I, I very much doubt this even had an editor. I can't see any way this was edited. Um, I, I, hope, I hope it wasn't. I hope the editor did just the, I signed a, uh, a major uh, figure to write a book, and I'm just going to give it the big check mark, because we, we haven't touched on it yet. Because we've been trying to grapple with the the manifold ways in which this book fucking sucks. Um, but oh, every geez. sentence is fucking agony. Mm. They're they're yeah. bad. Yeah, I wish is... I couldn't read. <laughs> yeah. It, I... We're, we're, we're talking about this before. Trigger warning also had some pretty whack sentences, but at least it was lit. Like mm. leftists yeah. were presented as like uh, members of ISIS that were also fused somehow genetically with ninjas. And it was like, oh, that's baller. That's not real, but that's baller. This is not, this is not lit at all. Yeah. It desperately wants nothing, to be. Nothing cool happens in this. Like, in There are in things that he thinks are warning, cool. I don't even know how he could think these things are cool. This is, this is him trying to do a serious literary novel. That's 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 my criticism of it. If he was to do like some wacky Gonzo shit with with ninjas or something, then maybe he could pull it off in some sort of like ultra anti art way. But he's trying like when Riza made like anime stuff. Yeah, or, or, or Riza's films. You ever seen um, yeah the Man with the Golden Fists? That's yeah, that shit's insane. just dumb baller. Yeah, it, yeah, I think maybe it sucks, but I don't, I don't fucking care. I don't <laughs> like, think it, it's it can, so tight. <laughs> I don't think the whole sucks rules thing even applies to it. It's got Russell Crowe in a kung fu movie. It, it's yeah, it's really cool though. Maybe logic is capable of that. Who knows? Probably not. 
because he's Wasn't trying to write sequel to yeah there was there was man yeah. with an iron fist 2 that came out direct to video nice um yeah they're, they're both amazing um <clears throat> they used to uh they used to play those movies before i did a heavy metal pub quiz at a bar in calgary that's yeah. fucking tight <laughs> it was cool yeah uh and, oh so... no, no sorry uh heavy metal bingo it's uh, and by heavy metal they would like sometimes play green day and uh, nickelback and stuff so but, i'm gonna uh, I, i'm gonna read you i'm gonna read you a quote gareth a quote that i'm not sure that that you've run into but maybe you have mm-hmm. um i'm gonna read the quote and then i'm gonna say who said the quote and you're gonna hate both parts of this okay, um cool. supermarket is like naked lunch meets one flew over the cuckoo's nest if they met at fight club fuck off do you know who wrote that? Oh god, it's gonna be someone. It's gonna be someone I. It's either gonna be uh-huh. someone I, I, res, I hate or respect. The author of Ready Player One. Oh fuck! I, I like my my phone. <laughs> off there. It, 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 nothing has happened to my phone. It, my phone just panicked. That's <laughs> fucking. Ex- yeah, you're leaving that in, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I've overridden. You got my... so upset that your phone yelled. <laughs> yeah, it, it made the panic noise from Metal Gear Solid. Oh fuck! Uh, yeah, Ernst Klein, who is <laughs> himself a absolute garbage artist. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Ugh. A reprobate reverse artist in that he makes words that are the opposite of art. It cancels out an amount of art. <laughs> Naked lunch. Oh. Uh, the what? top re- the top review on Amazon says, "Wow, this book is bad. It might be one of the worst novels I've ever read." Yeah, <laughs> another one is simply titled "Painfully Bad." <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, it's awful. I mean, we haven't even described it really. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, the description is hypothetically someone may could might have used the bones to make an okay novel. Okay, so. Uh, there's a. I've even forgotten the main character's name. He's Flynn. Flynn. Uh, oh. He's he's a thin stand-in for logic. Like yeah. Oh yeah. He's literally the thinnest. He references things that are well-known parts of logic's life. I don't even know why he did this valence. Like he might as well have just named it, but because then at least you get. I I hate I hate to compare it to a book that I like, but um. Like in Body to Job, we have we have the fact that there's the clear, deliberate valence of this is my real life. These are mm. real events that happened to me. And then you read them and clearly they're not um, because like he dies or gets wicked <laughs> mutilated. Yeah. But, but it, it, there, there's things that you can do. There's metafictive elements that, that you can play with there. I mean, you also have like famous bits of self-insert metafiction from like Robert Heinlein in after after he was fascist when he was more into horny mysticism um because he got way too high and he forgot about nazism um uh like so we have lots of examples of that and this was the opposite of that this was um it read like fan fiction about himself but but written by a guy who's already famous i don't understand why this exists yeah it Like, I would get it if it was a young novel, like something that he wrote when he was 16 or 17, then he breaks big and they're like, we're going to publish your book. And I'm like, then I could I could be a bit forgiving of it. It it would still suck a lot of ass. But he wrote this. 
like after he got famous. Yeah, and and it was barely marketed. I have, I don't even know where I came across this. I found it in a Barnes and Noble on one of the uh, the end stops, but one of the ones facing away from like you know how like uh, most major bookstores have that central aisle, and then they'll have the wings going off of the different sections. Mm-hmm. This was one of the end stops pointed towards like the wall. Mm, yeah, like I, between. I can see that two bigger sets of of bookshelves so like you had to be deep into the store to find it but not all the way against the wall where like the magazines and stuff are you had to it's like they were hiding it yeah in um deanscape manchester i'm gonna i'm calling you out you they actually put this on as you go into the literature section there's usually a, a stack of usually pretty decent books you know they'll they'll be like one for whoever's cuckoo's nest, there'll be naked lunch. Uh, you know, the, the like standard cult novels everyone reads. It'll be like Steppenwolf will be in there, you know, and so on. And and this was this was there. I didn't buy it, I got the audiobook, but um Manchester Deanscape, biggest uh bookshop in the north of England. You're slipping. I wish I'm calling that, you out. I wish that Herman Hesse would come back from the dead and uh uh, kill logic. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. That would be pretty tight. Because I'm imagining a world in which this book is sitting next to Steppenwolf, which is one of the greatest novels to read as a like a like a young adult that I, I think I've ever encountered. Most of Herman Hesse's stuff works best in that like magical window between like 14 and 25 when you're mm. still like getting a grip on the world. Um, yeah. And imagining this next to it, violently angry. <laughs> oh, do you know what else was on that on that uh, stand? Um, uh, what? John Darnell's uh, both of his novels, which are also very good. Incredible. I like Wolf and White Van a bit more than a uh, Universal uh, Harvester, but both are really good. Yeah, really, good. really good. I, I know John Darnell would never hurt someone. He no. would never kill logic, but no. he's he's legitimately a really good person. Yeah, but um, yeah, th- there comes a time when even a good man must take up arms against evil. So, and... so, 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 plot wise, supermarket to 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 try to explain it because we've we've avoided it because it sucks. Um, it's a dude who's twenty ish. He has a shit part time job. He has depression and he's lonely and uh he gets a new job at a supermarket and he witnesses uh, a horrible crime seemingly uh i say seemingly because then a large chunk of the book is supposed to be this like novel of psychological collapse where you're not sure what's real and what isn't real and like did the crime actually happen maybe it didn't happen maybe it did happen but he did it maybe he was involved but he didn't personally carry out the crime itself um and it there's a lot of like and then i did drugs and i had sex i had sex but i'm crazy i'm artist i'm crazy i'm gonna go back to my shit jo- and it it so we've mentioned before that there's a lot of weird conceptions about the literary world that you you see mouthy people on Twitter or on Facebook 
spout off about, but that if you're actually reading, you know, books that come out in the literary mold, you don't actually run into it nearly as often as people point out. It's not that it's a zero amount, but like novels about horny professors who want to fuck the nubile 18 year old aren't nearly as common as people present it. It's, it's not like you go into the literary, uh, you look at what's ranking well with literary critics and that's like 99% of the books. Um, nowhere, nowhere close to that. In fact, um, we have weird myths about like the angry young adult or the angry young man novel. And as much as we have a lot of what we consider classics that fit that mold, a lot of the things that are getting tout, uh, touted now aren't really fitting that like, Little Fires Everywhere by, um, uh, I forget her first name. Uh, Celeste Ng. Celeste Ng. Doesn't fit that mold at all. Brilliant book. No. Um, Homegoing. Doesn't fit that mold at all. No. The, really the Water Cure. My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Like, yeah. most, um, the what's name? The Overstory. Um, uh, uh, we have A Tale for the Time Being, which won the uh, Booker Prize in, I think, 2015. Um, we have Duck's Newburyport, which... Um, we're going to talk about, we're almost certainly going to have a full episode on it because mm. we've both been reading it. It's fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, fucking great. Um, mm -hmm. All brilliant, brilliant literary work made by women, made by non-binary people, uh, made by members of the trans community, made by people of color, ma like made by immigrants, made by uh, non-Westerners entirely. People who didn't immigrate, don't live in the West. This book is like a bad parody of what people think literary fiction is full of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is... You, 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 do you remember that um, guy in your MFA Twitter account that was briefly big? This is the yeah. book that, this, that the guy in your MFA would have written. I was it's going to make an, the exact same a comparison. Self-insert, yeah. Uh, Self-insert, um, starving artist... Uh, who manages to fuck loads of beautiful women and is really cool, but he's like angst. And then it turns out, uh, and, and then, yeah. So there's another character who works in the supermarket called Frank. And Frank is like, he doesn't give a fuck. He's a nihilist. He doesn't give a fuck, man. He's just out for himself. He smokes and he steals stuff. He wants to fuck all the girls. Uh, and, it turns out, get this, this is, this is good. You're going to love this. It turns out that he is, uh, he only exists in Flint's head. Yeah, Tyler Durden. That's just straight Whoa. up what it is. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Mind, mind blown. Um, I'm blowing myself in the mind. Yeah. I'm in my mind palace, like curled up in fetal position, blowing myself. And, um, Everyone in my mind palace is just clapping at how good I am at sucking my own dick. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, so I mean that that revelation comes about two thirds in. Then there's a bunch of stuff happening in a mental asylum, and, and I, I, know I gave up about. Let me see, where did I get up to? Like chapter twelve ish. Um, yeah, I, I just straight up gave up on this. Um, his the way he describes uh oh yeah i got most of the way for chapter 12. yeah the way he describes mental illness um is 
massively ill-informed. It's, it, it's it's just it's like embarrassing, bad, and inarguably destructive. If you were to like, we, we talk sometimes about how um, having too much of a moralist lens with fiction can get in the way of the function of fiction, which is to prevent irreal things that illuminate epiphanic aspects of life and and are meant to produce some kind of epiphanic response in the reader and that can go in many different kinds of directions it can be done with irony it can be done with sincerity it can be done with humor it can be done with drama all this kinds of stuff but but then you get to certain descriptions about like how depression works or how schizotypal disorders works and you're just like fuck you man <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, th this shit isn't real. You haven't done like your basic research. Like, I, I, like, I can, I, I can understand this stuff happening in Fight Club because it's like that was the first time we had encountered this trope in fiction. I think, I guess, Psycho kind of did it as well. But yeah, it, it's 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 a relatively old trick. Um, yeah, because it also goes back, arguably back to like the Epic of Gilgamesh with the um Gilgamesh versus Enkidu being mirrors of each other but they are functionally meant to be aspects of the same whole but i guess that's, but that's it, giving that's giving a reading of this that is substantially more grounded in history <laughs> than i think any author has ever actually had when they put it on the page um, i don't think anyone's yeah. ever been like i'm doing the gilgamesh thing right now is what i'm doing that's that's, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, what i'm doing right now <laughs> yeah i mean it, well, i mean Specifically, this is a psychological, a psychologized version of that. It's the the dark passenger that everyone has. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's come up probably a lot. But this yeah. is the the Fight Club, and this thing is a very um, modern Western pop psychology take on that. Where it, this is this is meant to be a literal condition that people have. That's uh, realistically that there are people in the world who have imaginary friends who seem to them to be a hundred percent real, which I'm like, we can, we can have, we've had actually good critical discourse about Chuck Palahniuk in general fight club in specific, where at its most, at a most generous read, um, the lens there is meant to be more magical realist than purely realist. And it's supposed to be almost Campbellian where it's, uh, or Jungian, where it's the shadow self emerging in order to teach a lesson to the conscious self that the conscious self wouldn't otherwise be able to learn. And there's all this kinds of like, and then obviously you're like, yeah, but it cloaks itself in the language of real psychology in a way that mm -hmm. technically Jung did, but Jung uses such whacked out mystical language most of the time that unless you you were reading it when that stuff was being published you, you can't read young in 2020 and think this guy is talking about real psychology it doesn't mm, sound yeah. like it at all it sounds yeah. like literary criticism which yeah. which it functions well as um then you read fight club and you're like this doesn't quite i see what you're doing i it's there but you did it badly this is like an even worse version mm. where that yeah. valence doesn't even seem to exist yeah, and it would it. I mean, this book's primary um, sin is showing not, not telling, which is the most cliched writing advice possible. And it's not even particularly good advice because there are tons of times where you should tell instead of show. There are tons of great passages in fiction which are just telling, and loads of times 
when it's a really good idea just to straight up tell people what's going on. This is constantly telling people what's going on. It leaves nothing to the imagination. People just declare uh, what the psychological state of the of Flynn is. You have literal therapists who are there to explain all the different psychological psychological maladies this non-entity character has, and then explain exactly how his particular, very specific um, psychology works, where he is doing this constant loop of working the supermarket, and all the people in the mental asylum with him uh, become characters in the supermarket as well. Uh, and and we're, we're just told that. We, it would be kind of... You could massively rewrite it, and maybe there would be a way you could show it as opposed to tell it, but he is just telling. That's all he knows. That The only trick he knows how to do is tell. It Everything about the plot reads like... Um, and I'm going to try to say this as lovingly as I can, which is... Not going to sound like a lot, but um, <laughs> this reads like the kind of thing that as a young man interested in mind-bending and experimental ideas in fiction that you turn in as a draft when you're 18 or 19 and you've just entered like a BFA program. Not, not oh, yeah. even an totally. MFA one, but... Yeah. And, and you, you get... You get put through the ringer by classmates who call it hackneyed and trite and cliche and all this kind of stuff. And you get hurt and you rewrite it and you double down on it. And it takes you until you're like 20 or 21 to finally let go of it and go like, well, the act of trying to write it and rewrite it has given me certain skills in prose that I wouldn't have otherwise. But I need to, if I want anything even like this, I need to approach it completely differently. All of the lensing was bad. Mm, and it's yeah. like... <clears throat> that that happens to people. It's sort of the the ugly secret of the writing world, and why you don't tend to see a lot of more serious writers go in as ultra savagely on criticizing published work as um, other people do. Is that there's a lot of there's a lot of skeletons in people's closets. Hopefully, it's not racist shit, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, of just like shit that you look back on it and you're like i i would i'm glad editors turned this down i'm glad mm, that i know yeah. i only got published when i got <clears> to this point because now my first work is something i can proudly show people with even with the caveat of i was young when i wrote that versus you know some people who like christopher paolini there's a kind of universal empathy to him from the world of writers that the motherfucker got famous off of a book he wrote when he was like 14 and now he's like trapped literarily mm. in that world unless he writes under a pen name he's gonna be the Aragon or aragon or however you pronounce it mm. guy forever mm. and there's there's no way there's no way to maneuver out of that um and that sucks because those books are bad <laughs> um <laughs> uh sorry to anyone who believes that i might have any sympathy towards them i think they're garbage uh but this this reads Again, like we were mentioning this before, it reads like an editor didn't have any comments, didn't hmm. didn't tell him like, no, this sucks. Like, you need to come back when you have a good book. What's worse, he put out a soundtrack album for this book. Like, this was a concentrated <sighs> with the same cover. Like, 
this was a collaborated effort between his record label, him, and a publishing company. Someone signed off. A lot of people signed off on this. A lot of people with money and the ability to say no said yes instead. Yeah, I mean, a lot of money had to and time had to have gone in. And like, like the guy is still making records. He's still. I think he's got one out in. He had one out last year. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Incidentally, a much better book. Um. And. Yeah, it's it must have been such a waste of his time and such a waste of everyone's time to make this, especially since it wasn't even marketed well. I, I mean, he's like one of the more famous people to have written a novel, late lately, and yeah, it just 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 sunk. It just disappeared. Um, hopefully, because someone along the way realized how terrible it was and didn't want this stinking up his career. It it reads as like a bad vanity project that just that people let him do rather than hmm. and it's not that it should have been shut down like he should have absolutely been able to um, hand in a manuscript to an editor but I can't imagine any editor could ever be considered to have done their job well if they mm. looked at it and went, yeah, yeah, we're going to publish this. Like, unless yeah. they straight up were like, so long as it's not racist or, or full of typos, it's going out. Um, <laughs> and they only got half that, that half right. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, like I've, I've said on the show before that I spent a little time reading a slush pile for a, a, a very big agency. I won't say their name, but um, they're one of the really big ones. Uh, they publish a lot of the people we've read on the show and, well, they don't publish, they they represent a lot of, some of the people we've read on the show, some of, like, big like, Booker Prize winning multi-filmed authors. And, yeah, I mean, so much stuff that is better than this in every way was I, was stuff that I cast aside when doing that. Like, if, if, I, if I found... I was kind of struggling to to remember from that time in my life, which was like 10 years ago, um, if there was anything that was as bad as this. And honestly, apart from the stuff that was clearly written by someone with serious mental problems, which is very common, actually, um, this was much worse than a ton of the stuff that I just like put in a in a recycling bin. And has never been published and never will be because it's just that terrible. Like, like I, I don't know if people were like expecting logic's name to sell a bunch of books. I mean, it's do logic's fans it, like, are they looking for a book from this guy? Do they want this? It's also worth noting that we've gotten good books from rappers before. This isn't, any i mean obviously uh i would hope that our listeners wouldn't assume that we're saying that anyone who picks up a microphone to make rap can't make a quality book that would be ins- that would be wildly racist and stupid hmm. um but, also, but we even have, um, like, if mf if mf doom is listening you could write a but uh sorry go on uh but like so we even have like all-time greats in the sense of like is in like all-time great books where like Jay-Z put out a book called Decoded, which is a collection of 
on one page will be his lyrics for a piece. And then the next page will be a complex breakdown of how he arrived at the line, what things are referencing, how he constructed them. And it, it's easy to make that kind of thing be very cliche, but for him, it's, he's also an extremely good like prose writer um, and elaborates on like incidents where like from his life or like, Oh, this line is meant. He explains some of the literary thought behind it where he's like, Oh, this line is meant to have slant rhyme to this. And I employed that because I wanted to bring these things into comparison with one another. And there's a frictive rub against the, like you get like, Oh shit, this is, this is some like it, lays bare some of the like mechanics of the of the literary value of of rap um that by now is sort of almost cliche to point out because thank god that cultural battle is over um we even have like the autobiography of gucci Mane, which is not written with startlingly great prose but is fucking thrilling because who doesn't want to hear gucci Mane's life hmm. in the man's own words um and then also just the the nature of his life story is, is a very engaging read because, you know, we, we saw the classic um, getting deeper and deeper into um, drugs and some mild gang action and stuff like that until he eventually wound up in prison and while in prison radically transformed himself and now lives in like a happy, sober, positive um, and transformative force now. And it's like you know everyone sort of who's who knows the story of Gucci Mane's life it's like it's an incredibly touching story um this isn't that this isn't that at all um, this is <laughs> oh. re, if someone encountered this they i mean we even have like the poetry of Tupac Shakur which is, is some really powerful poetry this is the kind of thing that would make people um I almost said become racist, which is almost true, but not what I want to say. Um, it, it, it's such an embarrassment that I would want to keep it away from people. Because mm. oh, yeah. I feel like the kinds of any kind of systemic <laughs> insight you could attempt to build off of it, other than some dudes need to write nine books before they're allowed to publish one. Um, I think would be startlingly off base just because of like how insanely bad it is. Like it will turn your brain trying to comprehend how something this shitty could be made. Oh yeah. And I, I can, I can definitely say I've never, even as a very young, I've, I've written a few novels in my time. None of them have ever been published. None of them should be. They're, they're not good enough. They don't make the cut. I don't think any, any of them, deserve any level of publication even after massive extensive edits they were all better than this everything i've ever done has been better than the published book supermarket by bobby hall aka also known as logic yeah i i can i can personally attest that for gareth in specific I, i've read a manuscript of his and it's it it's strong it's good i'm much less critical of it than gareth i think that's actually pretty <laughs> normal for people who've who've written a work and then have to look back at it that you're like, Hey, I'm going to cut my hands off and set my computer on fire. So if you need me, you know, let me finish that first. But, um, uh, yeah, it's like, I I'm trying to think of even of like my most embarrassingly bad book 
uh, that I've ever written. And or even I, short stories. Like I've never written a short story, even as a, a literal child, um, like 15 years old. I, I knew how to write better than this. I, I knew to avoid the pitfalls that he just gleefully skips into every, on like, every it, page. It's not just the ideas. It's not just the themes, which are confusing and muddled and poorly executed and frankly bad. It it's It's also, again, like the sentences themselves, they feel dull. They feel lifeless. They feel like mm. they were written by someone who's never read a book, never intends to read a book, and has no basis for what, like, a good... Because that's... What's even more frustrating is making a good sentence is, like, the foundational element of of a book. And yeah. it's partly the foundational element because it's not hard to learn. Like, within a year of and any a real fine arts program, you're going to be able to make a pretty good sentence. The rest of it from there is learning how to craft the longer structures. And, you know, how do I string this along and maintain pace or fluctuate pace that his is like bad top to bottom the atoms mm. are bad and the mega constructs are bad yeah i mean i, I don't know if he's uh, he's like going for some sort of literary minimalism thing because uh, he doesn't succeed like no people are doing this much much better than he has brett easton ellis does it better uh, scott mcclanahan does it better bud smith does it better like Everyone can do the people can do minimalist, very short declarative sentences and do them really well and make beautiful poetry out of it. But this is not it. This is not it. I mean, I don't know what he's like as a rapper because that, uh, he's bad. Okay. Like, yeah, he's bad. He used okay. to not be nearly as bad. He actually has, has some his beat selection early in his career pretty good. His lines pretty good. Not all-time great, but there was a reason why there was some esteem behind him. And then he set about methodically, deliberately squandering it in such, uh, <laughs> such a wild and ecstatic manner that you're like, wow, you hate everyone who's ever complimented you. Amazing. Okay. Right, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. If you, that, the kind of person who would do that would write this book and probably be very... Um, be very uh, proud of it but he probably is still very proud of this and he he, he probably thinks like you know, there's a million rappers out there how many of them have written a written a book he probably doesn't know about gucci mate uh, or jay-z but um yeah he, he probably thinks he probably thinks this has elevated him above other rappers who couldn't write books Ugh. and even like Ice T, he, he's a literate he's a literate guy. He hasn't written any books, but he took his name inspiration from Iceberg Slim, who was a, a really amazing novelist, um, and who definitely deserves like a critical renaissance. Um, yeah, and and also if you read Ice T's Twitter, the guy could clearly clearly knows how to string a sentence together in a way that could destroy a man. Um, but oh yeah. Just it, this book, this book. Oh, you hate, I, I hate that I've read this. I hate that this has been inside me. Um, this is just, uh, it even looks bad. It even looks like a shitty book. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I know we bought this on ourselves. 
but I'm still mad at everyone who's given us money for making this happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so join us next time when we read Ben <laughs> Shapiro's novel, uh, if you give us even more money. That's right. We're, uh, we're gluttons for punishment. Yeah. I, I, from what I can tell, uh, Ben Shapiro's novel, I'm going to find the, the name of it here. Um, where is this? Oh, yeah. True Allegiance. True Allegiance? Yeah. yeah. Came out in 2016. Uh, little bits have been read on Chapo. Um, and from what I can tell, he's a better writer than. Um, I mean, he's, he's in no way good. Just in absolutely no way good. Um, but yeah, ne once we get to 250, um, we're, we'll, we're, we're going to be going down. I was going to say going down on Ben Shapiro. That's some. Um, <laughs> I don't uh, well, even know if that's you, a Freudian that slip. If you want. I mean, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> I would advise against it. Salon.com yeah. referred to uh, Ben Shapiro's novel with the phrase, meet our new Ayn Rand. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, I ben hope. Shapiro probably thinks that's a, that's a high compliment. Everyone in the world actually knows that's a terrible, terrible uh, clap. Uh, Brad uh, Thor gave it a compliment. Brad Thor, by the way, is oh, a um, uh, he writes dad fic, is what I would call it, where it's like mm. gun humping, hyper patriotic, dumb bullshit. Like, um, like if Clive Cussler, who passed recently, it was pretty sad. If uh, if his jingoism was ratcheted up from like an eight to like a thirty out of ten, um, and but at least Brad Thor's plots are wicked baller they're uh, uh reactionary as fuck so you know don't read or support him but you read about them and you're like okay i get why a reactionary would read this because it does sound lit and mm. if my politics were insanely bad then i could get over my only hurdle also i have to be functionally illiterate yeah i'm mm. i'm i'm intrigued by how uh <laughs> Another man who said that he loved it um, is the author of a book called The Weed Agency. <laughs> wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna join that agency. Are they recruiting? Because it's a weed agency. Uh, wait, wait. Sponsored products related to this item: Death's Head, Hitler's Wolf Pack. <laughs> it's historical fiction from the point of view. Uh, I believe this is going to be from the point of view of a Nazi. Pretty, pretty tight. There are many good books that have been written from the point of view of Nazis. Um, was, was that really, really good? One? Oh, the, the Kindly Ones. That was a brilliant book written from the point of view of a Nazi. Maybe, maybe Death's Head, Hitler's Magical SS Awesome Guys, or whatever it's called, is a great book. Uh, also, the... Uh, there's a book called The Templar Detective. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, sponsored products related to the items on Amazon are... I mean, we, we, could, we could do a whole other podcast just randomly picking them because they're, they're amazing. Uh, there was, there's a whole se series of uh, special operator romances where a guy will be like a Navy SEAL assigned to protect a diplomat who's also a hot babe. <laughs> and um, they'll, they'll fall in love, and it's kind of like it's kind of like Twilight, but with but meets like Zero Dark Thirty. No, like Brad Ford doing Twilight. Um, so we should check some of those out. 
that's on that's that's on the five hundred. When we get to when we're making some serious bank, we'll read all the special operator romances, and we'll like, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, like, if people if people want to pay us, I will read straight trash. I have no <laughs> standards whatsoever. I am a very cheap buy. Yeah, after supermarket, what can possibly be worse? Like hell holds no surprises for me now. There is I I've seen how bad a book can get. Ben Shapiro's book is going to oh be better god. than this. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm going to link something <laughs> to you. I'm going to link something to you right now. Okay. I'm, I'm, All right. I wait. Your your link. Drunk on a plane. The misadventures of a drunk in paradise. Book one. Uh the guy's name is Daniel T. Drunk. <laughs> um, so, so this looks insane and terrible but also lit this looks very lit oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, of all the things we could have read it, it's all oh oh so it's part of a four book series there are many drunk books there's drunk driving drunk on the job drunk on the job looks really impressive and, and these are not horribly designed. Um, there's, I mean, they are, but like, it could be worse. They're pretty bad looking. They do have the same model for all of the books, though, which is really saying something. <laughs> have you seen the customer images? Scroll uh, down to the customer images here. Uh, pe uh, people at home do this uh, too. There's some. <laughs> <laughs> it's an anime babe <laughs> yeah. and a of a, a chud looking dude yeah this this is like this okay there's a, like a poor cosplay and a guy who looks like a f human face drawn on a thumb but it's a real guy uh so that's the kind of people who read drunk on a plane um i wonder who reads uh supermarket by bobby hall aka also um known as uh logic um i wonder what um you can't even get it can you even you, i don't think you can get it on amazon oh i i, I saw a... it recently i mean i got i got an ebook oh no oh okay so. yeah okay yeah okay sorry i was clicking on the wrong thing uh yeah people who who viewed that item also viewed uh wow a bunch of like murder mysteries and just not yeah people people really don't like this book i mean i think great ideas on the pleasure of hating okay there's no way that people who viewed supermarket also viewed the rights of man by thomas Paine. that is absolutely <laughs> a lie i i think it, it should be a right that you don't have to read this one's book own? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Arguably, this, they're the same book. Um, so let's uh, let's let's do some music. We need to detox after this. Um, do you want to play tombs? Uh, sure. Let's play some tombs. Uh, I, I have any. I, I've been very busy, so you. That one's slightly less good than the other one, but logic doesn't deserve the really good one. No.
And to be fair, Tombs is really good. So I, I don't want to. I don't want to come across like I'm trying to shit on Tombs. I'm just way hype about the other one. Um, yeah. So Tombs is a um, a really uh, interesting band, uh, is how I would describe them. In that when they started, they were uh, basically like a post metal band. Like I saw them initially uh, off the back of when they still had like a MySpace page. Like this is how early into their career it was um on the isis tour for in the absence of truth where the bill was i believe it was uh isis pelican and tombs um Mm -hmm. i may be getting the second band wrong but i believe it was pelican um but they had i don't think they'd put out uh winter hours their debut yet but um had it was basically a post-metal album. But the thing that was interesting about it is that it had a lot more black metal folded into it than uh, post-metal at that point really had. Um, this was obviously well before, you know, post-metal and black metal, like, had that deep fusion that gave us bands like Fen and, you know, things like that, who are fucking great bands. Love Fen. Um, and Fen are anti-fascists. They're quiet about mm-hmm. it, but but hate fascism. Um, Good. But... Uh, as as the band got deeper and deeper into its career, and post metal became less of a um, less of a hip genre to be like not not saying that they were concerned more about like hipness, but we all witnessed as the critical rise and fall of post metal happened. They shifted more and more towards those black metal and also weird post punk ideas. So it still has. The thing that remains from post-metal of them is their, like, really, like, tough, down-picked chug thing that before would have been for, you know, the, the heavy rhythmic stuff of post-metal, but now it's just, like, they'll be, they'll be playing black metal, and then when they go into a chugging bit, instead of it being these, like... If you know what I mean with, like, second-wave bands have kind of, like, a light and almost wimpy chug to them they don't they don't have the meat of like a metallica or like a like like a deathcore band or something uh tombs has a lot more of the like there's a lot of meat behind those chugs like it feels very physical and then it's black metal and then it's dumb and physical again it's it's really tight Hmm. so they're still basically a black metal band but they have you know just these little touches a little bit of post-punk little bit of post-metal little bit of like tough guy hardcore and it's Hmm. it's nice yeah yeah they're a a, they're a very cool band um they've got a a new album called monarchy of shadows which they've very nicely decided uh to just like put all on youtube you can just listen to the whole album there scenes in the mist are like yeah we don't need to make money um yeah so uh the the first track was premiered last year, 11th of December. So we have really dropped the ball on this. But the, the actual album has just come out. It's, like I say, on YouTube if you don't want to give them money. Which you should, because they, they deserve your money. But, um, yeah, so we're going to play a title track. Um, and then come back. And we're gonna, we'll talk about stuff we like. We've been too spiteful. We've been, too, we've been haters. So we're going to come back and talk about good stuff. But here's Monarchy of Shadows.
that was Tombs, all uppercase, uh, with Monarchy of Shadows, which you can just go to YouTube and watch, as if it was a uh, Anthony Fantoni. Is that how you pronounce his name? Fantano. Fantano, yeah. I've, I'm, he's like, I've never seen any of his stuff. He's apparently like influential music critic of of our generation by... Yeah, yeah, by by like by like heads and shoulders, and it causes some people to really, really lose their minds. He's, to be fair, he's done he's done some dumb dork shit in the past, but yeah, I, I've to- I've totally missed on this guy existing. But um, I'm extremely neutral about him, which tends to confuse some people. He he loudly backed um, what is it? What's that one dude that they had? They had that show on Adult Swim that partly got canceled because uh, Tim Heidecker watched it. And was like, these are alt right. Oh, is that that like, million goons. dollar extreme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was a big fan, or I think still is a big fan. Um, granted, he and had like a second YouTube channel where he made jokes similar to theirs, and people read it as him being like an alt-right figure um even though he, he's he's very openly like a leftist he isn't quite a marxist leninist but or anything like that but um he gave the a a frustratingly plausible explanation which is that as a cishet white dude he thought their dumb chode jokes were uh, oh, funny okay and it's one of those things where uh as a cishet white dude who said and done similar things in my own past, I looked at that and was like, no, that's believable. <laughs> like, there's a chance that even someone with otherwise decent politics can look at something reactionary and regressive and go like, aha, dick joke, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing. Um, yeah. Okay, I, which, I, I don't feel bad for missing, mal- missing out on him then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't begrudge people who are like, I'm not going to watch or support him. I don't really watch anything of his anymore. Um, stopped years ago because it was too much of a headache to, but I, I'm also, I don't, I don't think it's really fruitful for people to be like, if anyone's watched him, that's the same as like in Richard Spencer, any weird hyperbolic mm. nonsense. Yeah. I mean, we could go into a, the whole, uh, the recent Chapo dis- discourse here, um, which we, we won't because, uh, and what, the yeah. MIT article is garbage. Um, you can like them and not like them, but don't not like them on the basis of what was in the NYT article because it was just, it was silly. It was v- deeply, deeply silly. Um, it's like there are left criticisms of Chapo. Those are valid. Those are good. That article contained none of them. Um, uh and we get weird defensiveness from people who like them because they it, it, there is a necessary dialectical engagement on the topic because they're very big in left space and deserve to be critically engaged. And serious, uh, uh, serious critical engagement means there will be some negative components to it as well. There will be some positive components. We all have to sort of get over that and maturely have that. And those discussions are being had, not through that new york times article mind you but they are being had it, it, it's um, the same with virtually anything there there's we could be having important discussions on important things but in but instead a bunch of idiots come into the room and crap everywhere and now we have to clean up their crap yeah 
<laughs> no one wants to have the proper discussion because we're too horrified by the fact that we're now cohabitating with a bunch of human yeah, feces. Exactly. <laughs> like we're we're in our, our um, salons uh, with some brandy and we're in big chairs and some dude just comes in craps everywhere. He don't like in a perfect world we would be having more robust leftist criticism of figures like Bernie Sanders or figures like Jeremy Corbyn, because there are things to criticize there. There's things that, as a leftist, I have qualms with, and I want to see addressed. And then I look around at the rest of the room, and I go, even with these things, he's head and shoulders the best person in the room. Hmm. And that sh that should be frustrating. Um, it should be that a guy who rolls back literally the mildest positive comments about Cuba, mentioning like their literacy rate, which is just an objective mm. truth. Like that's not, that's, that's numbers on a piece of paper. That's, that's just fact. Um, or the fact that China, communist China lifted more people out of poverty than any country in the world, which even putting ideology aside, China has so many people that, you would need most countries in the world to lift all of their people out of poverty to begin to even get close to that number just because of how many people are in China. Like if you help 50% of the people in China, that's 1.5 billion people. Like that's the entire population of India. Hmm. Just, just in a percentage of China. Um, and this is withholding. My, my ideological compliments of communist states. But people couldn't process literally the mildest statistical, like, finger point and mm. lost their shit. Um, yeah. That, yeah, it's like we can critique and should critique that Bernie Sanders rolling back even those mild compliments is a sign of a white supremacist imperialist mindset mm. at work that... For some reason, the faults and foibles of communist states, which do exist, uh, completely discredit all good that they've mm -hmm. ever done. Meanwhile, the West can brutalize the global South uh, in ways that are absolutely mind-bogglingly horrific and never answer for any of these crimes. And we're supposed to like salute the troops at all mm -hmm. times and love all cops, things yeah. like that. Um, that those two things shouldn't sit side by side. And if we let them, it's because we believe in an imperialist mindset. Um, but it almost feels like a distraction to say that because, again, literally every single other person on that stage is somewhere between significantly to insanely mm. worse than him. Yeah. And you could. The next best person pretended to be Native American <laughs> for decades. And was a Republican. That's the next best. Yeah. <laughs> or is Joe Biden, who is very, very clearly senile? I mean, it's it's not even a thing. Um, like he he has he has his mind is decaying. He cannot string sentences together. Yeah, it, He's it, it it feels frustrating and almost like tantamount tantamount to elder abuse to see him paraded around. And it's not that being old does that because yeah. again, there there are plenty Bernie's, of people Bernie's that age, age or older that are perfectly fine. But he, he's seen experiencing yeah. senescence in a way that, yeah. But uh, anyway, we, we should talk about books we like, because, you know, I, I yes. don't want anyone <laughs> to ever read Supermarket even as a joke. 
um, what we did was wrong. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, I regret it. We should have <laughs> just picked a kind of, oh, let's read Harry Potter or let's read Twilight. Whoa, wacky. No, we, we read a genuinely awful book and we regret every second of it. So, okay, what, what I've been reading lately. So, uh, Olga uh, Tokarczuk is a Polish writer. She has a Nobel Prize in Literature award winner. Um, I've, I haven't read her early work, but her new book, or newly translated into English, it came out in like 2006. There's already been a, a film version made. Uh, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which is a, a Blake reference. There's a lot of Blake references in this. Um, it's a existential detective story. Um, there's basically a series of murders in a rural area of uh, Poland near the border with uh, Czech Republic. Um, a very eccentric kind of reclusive woman um, becomes embroiled in the investigation. Uh, she is heavily into astrology and William Blake and animals. She has spent uh, the majority of the book trying to persuade the police that, um, that the murders were committed by deer. And um, yeah, it, it's an incredibly good book. I mean, just mind blowing. You can, I mean, easy Nobel Prize winner stuff here. Um, it's only it's tiny. It's like two hundred fifty odd pages, two hundred seventy. Um, it's um, yeah. The, the, this character, this this woman, is just an absolute joy to be around for the length of a book. And she doesn't. It's it, I call it a detective story, but she doesn't do a whole lot. Um, I would say describing any of her works as a joy <laughs> is a bit of a strange. <laughs> Choice of it, words. It, 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 no, I, I, I defend my choice of words here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's miserable. It's set in like the arse end of Poland. It's everything is horrible there. But um, this character, uh, and and she's not like a lovely person who you'd actually like to be around in real life. It's it's really fun to be in her head because she is a human being like any of us, but she is so different because of her like fundamentalist belief in astrology william blake and animals um yeah it, it's you know that that really basic observation that literature lets you get inside other people's heads better than any other medium um this is absolutely true of uh, drive your plow it's just so good it's so fun to get in someone's head and it's it's like it's like those people who take really fast sports cars out to a uh, like an air like a airport not an airport like a runway and just like whip them around and just like to just burn off the tires and just see how fast their cars can go. It's like that, but for a person who is imaginary. That's why it's so good. I, I haven't even finished it yet. I'm maybe halfway through. I've been very slow because we've been reading other stuff for this for this and i've been editing stuff and work and all that stuff and try not to get coronavirus and die and um but yeah really really loving this i give it five nobel prizes out of a possible like 5.5 that's the most nobel prizes you can get five and a half and she gets five of them uh i'll probably go back and read her early stuff because she and She's also an outspoken feminist in Poland, 
where like three quarters of the country has been declared a LGBTQ free zone at the moment. And they were, yeah, yeah, it's L Poland's civil rights history is absolutely mm, atrocious. Yeah. Um, they have a as much as they get um, lambasted for for uh, the period of time that they were a communist state. Their their post communist period has been absolutely yeah. no better. Um, like it's, at it's all. just farcical at times. Uh, they do stuff like try and elect God the president of Poland. Just it. Like we talk about, so this is not to defend Nergal, the main guy behemoth who has revealed himself to be a big old shithead in, in lots of different ways that you can Google. I'll let you do that. But we get, we see certain things like God equals dog. And for us, it feels like, okay, that's, you're like a child. But then you have... In, in Poland, there are literally laws that say that even a dumb fucking joke like that, which is just straight up like a like a bad farce of a joke, can get you sent to, like, severe prisons for years. Hmm. Like, it's, it's, just, it's just comically bad. And that's for mild things. Now, that's not to say that... Like, that's not to play the pithy atheist card of, like, oh, see, atheists are oppressed, because even though technically that counts... That's the mild end. The punishments for being, say, a known member of the queer community are substantially worse. Like, um, attempting to be self-liberatory as a woman or as a person of color, those punishments are substantially worse. Like, that's, think of that as, like, the floor for absurd punishments, is that you can get sent to jail for years for making, like, objectively bad Ooh, jokes yeah. about, about religion. Is shit. It, it gets worse from there. Yeah, Poland pre-fucked up place. Olga Tokarczuk is a outspoken feminist and brilliant author. Um, so yeah, go read her books. They're on uh, Fitzcarraldo editions, which look absolutely amazing. And um, if you read them in public, then girls will come up to you and ask you what you're reading. That's a known fact. Um, so what 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 have you been reading? Uh, oh, I literally. Then, like earlier today, less than like less than two hours ago, finished reading uh, the book "When We Were Orphans" by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, people have been listening for a while. Will know that I've been working through his body of work. Um, just it's a flippant thing. Um, I was in a bookstore. I was looking at his work. I remembered having read. I think I'd convinced my partner to pick up "Never Let Me Go" and read it, or something relatively recently and it reminded me that like oh i read that one when it came out loved it everyone did I read remains of the day when i was an undergrad because if you study english you read the book at some point um and for good reason it's a great book um but i hadn't really dug any further and i'd known about the buried giant but i haven't read that one because that one got a lot of press when it came out so it's like he won the nobel prize i'll dig in and i've been since working my way through um working my way through his bibliography and that was his uh, When We Were Orphans is his fifth book of eight that he's had come out. Absolutely loved his first two that I, I believe I, I we actually had a short episode where I was discussing um, Pale View of the Hills and uh, a portrait of or an artist mm. of the floating world. Both immaculate, really sensitive, really delicate novels. Then obviously third novel is Remains of the Day. It's this very robust, very 
significantly more English book compared to how Japanese um, the first two books are, which makes sense because he was born and raised in Japan until the age of like five or six when he, um, him and his family emigrated to uh, England. Then his fourth book is The Unconsoled, which is just, just wildly, wildly dull. Um, the longest book of his outside of the remains or outside of the unconsoled is when we were orphans, in fact, and that's 350 pages. The unconsoled is 550 pages, so it's almost twice the length of his next longest book, and but has less happen in it. Mm-hmm. Just wildly dull. So I was uh, heartbroken. I remembered that Never Let Me Go was really good. Mm-hmm. And I loved it when yep. I read it. But I was very cautious to read When We Were Orphans, which is the one that came between The Unconsoled and Never Let Me Go. And much to my uh, supreme pleasure, it's one of my favorite books of his mm-hmm. that I've read. I, I, I'm, I'm cautious. My gut tells me it's his, my favorite one that I've wow. read. I'm, I'm cautious to say that because never let me go. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm cautious about saying that because I literally just finished it, so it may be you know that that rush still, but just absolutely loved it. Um, because it it got lambasted by critics when it came out in a way that the unconsoled should have. Um. To be fair, all the thematics of the unconsoled work. It's just it didn't need to be 550 pages. It could have gotten all of what it wanted to convey in about 300 pages, which is seems to be the magic number um, for Ishiguro, somewhere between 250 and, and 300, and it would have been perfect. Uh, but it just is way too fucking long. Um, when we were orphans, is it actually joins with um, a pale view of the hills? Never Let Me Go on the Buried Giant as being another book that is very deeply a genre novel as much as it's a literary novel. So obviously Never Let Me Go, um, which made a huge splash when it came out, is is a sci-fi literary book. Um, near future, it's about um, organ replacement and stuff. It's basically a somewhat more literary version of something like House of a Scorpion, which was a surprisingly good YA book that came out that covered very similar themes about clones and replacement body parts and replacement humans and all that kind of stuff. And then The Buried Giant, which had a big splash, is as much a fantasy novel and an Arthurian, like specifically an Arthurian fantasy novel as it is a literary novel. Um, Much less noted, A Pale View of the Hills, a... Um, a major figure within the book is a water ghost. Cool. Um, where if you're not familiar with what water ghosts are, you may pick it up as like, oh, a weird lady who lives over on the other side of a river. But if you know about it, if you know about what water ghosts are, you're like, oh, her house never has lights. She lives on the other side of the river. No one except a young girl ever sees her. And she keeps beckoning the young girl to cross the river to see her. But she herself can't cross that river you're like oh i know what that is um and it takes place in a city that is eventually destroyed by a nuclear bomb oh oh (laughs) um never uh when we were orphans very similarly it takes takes a different genre space of the detective novel and uh layers his very delicate 
um, and very socially dynamic sense of literary uh, writing on top of it, where it's it's a pretty standard trick within literary detective novels of the detective has a central mystery that they're investigating. In this case, the main character's parents go missing. First his dad, and then shortly thereafter his mom. And this happens within Shanghai, where they grew up, despite being English people, or white English people to be specific. Um, and then a close family friend, close enough that he refers to him as an uncle, um, who is a Chinese man in Shanghai, escorts him to England, where he lives the rest of his life and becomes a detective and all this kinds of stuff. Um, and he partly becomes a detective because he fantasizes about finding his parents. And then part of the novel is him attempting to crack the case of where his parents went. I say part of the novel because a large chunk, like over 100 pages in the middle of a book that's only about 300 pages long, like it's about 150 pages, are about the social drama and social dynamics of his life in England, um, going to various high society meetings and gatherings, his encounters with a woman named Sarah Hemings, and there, Isha is very good about writing literary romances in that they aren't like, we looked at each other and it was like stars in the sky and we in love. And um, he's a lot more delicate and it feels like a, like a very beautiful exploration of the way real actual relationships develop. Um, and in this one, it's that the male character, um, uh, Christopher Banks, who's the main character, um, finds Sarah Hemings off-putting because she looks like she is like, like the social clout version of a gold digger. She just drifts from influential person to influential person, and he wants to keep that kind of at bay. But then anytime he actually spends time with her, he finds her intensely charming, um, personable, like, like he encounters her real personhood and is like, oh, maybe that's a weird, like, kind of gross mischaricature that people have because they're angry at her for, you know, being able to consistently stay within high society circles. Um, and so it, uh, the end of the book, it brings that back in, but the end of the book famously takes, or uh, not famously, that's a weird choice of words. It takes place in Shanghai in 1937, which, if you're aware of world history, two big things that were happening in China in the late 1930s were the rise of Mao and uh, communism in general and the Japanese invasion. So when he finally returns to Shanghai to finally try to crack the case of what happened to his parents, it's when the... Uh, nationalists and communists are at war with each other um, over the, the political future of China, and Japan is invaded. So it becomes partly a war novel as he's navigating a literal war zone to try to get to the location that he believes his parents are being held. But because it's Ishiguro, all of this gets sort of turned on its head, um, and nothing winds up being... It, what you think it is um and none of the answers feel they don't feel like big and elaborate like a like a tentpole blockbuster they they flit around that same component that's present in all of his books which is that facing the real truth is intensely difficult and it often makes us feel very small because these big grand narratives that we want for our lives like the remains of the day fixates on this where 
the butler gives himself this grand narrative of having, you know, being part of British high society and supporting lords and the proper role of a butler. And he realizes that all of his delusions of self-worth prevented him from seeing that he was aiding a Nazi collaborator. And he only can process this near the end of his life when it's way too late to do anything. Mm. Um, that this is the guy's delusions of being a great detective and cracking the case and the kinds of, but also his delusions about um, whether he should trust or love Sarah Hemming, um, which she winds up in the intervening time when he's hemming and hawing, she marries another man, but clearly fosters feelings for him. So he follows them to Shanghai and she leaves her husband and attempts to leave with him, but he chickens out in order to go investigate the mystery of his parents. And so she leaves without him and marries a completely different guy. And it, it circles on all those same themes of like his self delusion both prevented him from exploring certain paths that his life could have taken um, and thus filled him with a kind of melancholy and regret that he can't ever really answer, but also paradoxically delivered him the shape of the life that he did actually have. And so that trying to reconcile, uh, trying to reconcile that sort of almost anti-literary feeling of like, we give ourselves grand narratives, which are almost never true and almost never pan out the way that we think that they will, like even anywhere close. But they do give us real lives. They give us real connections with real people around us who happen to be passengers on that journey. And it feels like real life doesn't feel through written and through composed. It normally, like my own life, <laughs> feels very disjointed, very confusing. Like I'll get two thirds of the way to one goal and this thing will sweep me sideways and I'll get half of the way to completing that goal when this other thing will come in and derail me. And, you know, four things are happening at once and it's always the one that seems to matter least that actually gets completed and that I look back on fondly. And so he folds all of that in, into the book. It feels very rich and real. And of course, critics lambasted it for being disjointed. Hmm. which goes to show that not everyone can read even if it's their fucking job. Oh, oh sorry. You, oh. Like, I don't get how someone can read Ishiguro and be like, oh, his plots didn't, you know, smoothly go from one thing to the hmm. next, and thematics didn't give me that bold, almost like saccharine, like overly dramatic revelation. Like, he finds out from a guy late in the book that like, oh yeah, no, you're, it's implied that because the main character's mom is an activist against um, the opium trade in China because she finds it deeply anti-Christian and deplorable what uh, British firms are not just allowing to happen, but are actively seeking to try to make happen, like in through surreptitious semi-legal means so that they can run China as a colony without actually having to formally make it a colony. She's like, I find this deplorable. Um, he's under the impression that his father and his mother get kidnapped and potentially killed uh, because of that activism. Mm. And then a guy later in the book tells him, like, no, your dad just ran away with his mistress. And we conspired to make you think that he'd been abducted, 
because it was easier to make you think that he got abducted because of this noble thing than just he felt he couldn't live up to how moral and righteous his wife, your mom, was, mm. and so ran away. And then he died of typhoid. Like, it was completely mm. unrelated. Like, he just went to Singapore to live with his mistress, caught typhoid, and died. Yep. And, like, when he finally finds his mom, uh, one, of course, the building that he thinks they're being held in, they're not being held in. It's just a Chinese family lives there. There's absolutely nothing related to his parents there whatsoever. He can't find his mom at all. He finds out that she was made a concubine of someone um, that then was immediately captured when Japan invaded China, and she was put in an internment camp and then eventually moved to a uh, like a mental health facility in the immediate post-war era. And then communist China, when they were ejecting foreigners in order to make um, China... Um, Chinese again, for lack of a better term. Uh, she got deported back to England and happened to match a description that he had put out. So he's reunited with her. But the traumatic experience has rendered her incapable of recognizing him as uh, her son. And it's straight up like, like three and a half decades later. So he looks like when she last saw him, he was like eight. And he's now like... um significantly older and she's in senescence and traumatized and so he just sees her and is like well i can't take you home because i don't have the money for that you don't recognize me this doesn't give me any sense of catharsis i'm gonna leave you with the nurses yes um and just everything's messy and fucked up (laughs) no that's that sounds cool i like that yeah um it was like really, really painful and beautiful and evocative and yes, wildly good book. And then uh, Lucky Me, the next Ishiguro novel that I get to read is Never mm. Let Me Go because that's his yeah. next book. So that'll be a reread for me. And that'll also make me wildly yeah. sad. We <laughs> do an episode on that on the Patreon, maybe because I've, I've yeah. got it. I haven't read it for years. I've, I haven't even seen the film, I don't think. Um, so yeah, it'd be nice to nice to read that one again. I know there's a lot of people out there who who like it as well. Um, uh, Podside Picnic did a really good episode on it. Um, uh, but yeah, we should. Um, those are two books out of the many millions that are published each year that you could read that would not be Supermarket by uh, Bobby Hall, aka also known as uh, Logic. Um, there are so many great books out there, folks. We haven't even touched nonfiction. That's like a whole other thing. There's great nonfiction being written yeah, every and, day. Yeah, literally, it's like so. We're we're aware of the fact that our metrics do better when we cover nonfiction than fiction. Um, and so you know, we we try to incorporate that. But literally, there's so fucking yeah. much, and a lot of it's really good. That it's like it becomes a question of like, what do we pick to? spend the time not just to read but to have thoughts on in order to convey to you guys and finding like and uh pulling in guests who maybe evolve like but it's it's because there's so much good quality nonfiction that's insightful or that triggers good thoughts even if you wind up disagreeing with the book by the time you're done it like it it has generated new thoughts in you you wouldn't have had otherwise so fucking much yeah. like we are in 
I don't want to say golden age because actually we've had a pretty consistent good publishing run of this stuff for a long time now. But so it's like, why do people make bad books? There are already too many good books. There, there are and there are enough good books written in a year that you couldn't read them in a lifetime, easily. Um. So yeah, folks, just just read some good ones. Read. There are so many out there. You can throw a dart in a in a Waterstones or Borders and find a good book. You don't have to read Supermarket by Bobby Hall, a.k.a. also known as Logic. Uh, but to play us out, um, I haven't heard this band ever. I've, I've heard Tombs many, many times. This, these guys are entirely new to me. I will be hearing them for the first time uh, when I download the MP3 in order to put it into this, into this recording. Um, I, can't, I barely even remember what their name is. I definitely can't pronounce it. Flusterars, I think, or Fluisterars. They're uh, Dutch. Okay. Who I, I'm not going to pretend that I can pronounce a Dutch name. I'd be more flippant about the Dutch, who speak what I would describe as drunk English, the same way that um, I don't want to make cracks about Welsh, because I know that it's actually an embattled ethnicity within the UK, oh, yeah. and there's, there's some legitimate political conflicts there. But Jesus Christ, that language sounds like gobbledygook oh, to me. I'm a white American. It's not, not going to sound... That's, hmm. I'm just missing the point. I'm aware of that. I can acknowledge that. Dutch, however, fuck it. It sounds like a drunken hmm. person. <laughs> but their their records are so fucking beautiful, though. Like, I know it gets thrown around a bit of, like, black metal being beautiful. Um, or certain black metal bands being beautiful as opposed to being savage. But every now and again, it hits you again. Like, it's the first time that you heard, like... Um, Death Heaven or Landlos or Even like um, Ulva. These guys like, don't like early Ulva yeah. and uh, Bergtat. Yeah, these so Bergtat I think is actually a really great comparison here because these guys don't really sound like Death Heaven or even Landlos. Um, it sounds very much like black metal, but it's it's it, just like Bergtat does. But it's it's beautiful. Like the opening hit, like the opening chord they hit on the first track of this album is a major chord. And then it goes into the tremolo picking stuff. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel corny. Like it, it feels like black metal, but that it, it touches on that essence of black metal that say like botanist mm. dig into of feeling like forests and wind and ice and these elemental forces. Mm. Um, and that you can point that in different kinds of directions. The fact that the cover is literally um, implied to be a field of flowers, but is a close-up of like you know just a couple of flowers in bloom, um, feels very fitting uh, as a cover because it, it it feels like maybe being in a Dutch field and witnessing flowers and this. There's a mixture of a feeling of like you know longing and melancholy. But it's it's mixed with this like brightness and euphoria, like you know sunlight and you know watching plants mm. growing, and it's like, yeah, I'll die, <laughs> but you know, look at, yeah. it's know, a, look at it's that a, moss. That moss is that. It's a springtime great. album. You know, it's going outside yeah, and seeing all the like. I've got a lovely park around my way, and there's all these daffodils and crocuses and snowdrops, and they all come out for about a month a year, then they disappear again, and they come back. Sounds sounds to me kind of like that. It's, 
it's it's fucking great i um every now and again like pretty much every year there's that gap where you're writing or for me like writing about music where there's that lull between like late november and sometime in late january or february and not a lot of records are coming out and they start coming out in a dribble and there's always that worry that like now that i'm in my 30s is that thing happening that i've heard happens to some people they get in their 30s and they just don't care as much about new music or new art in general. They just sort of lock into the things that they like. I mean, it's just the the paranoia that, you know, the, the early signs of boomerism and senescence are going to fall on me. And, you know, ling- working through that every year of like, oh, these records aren't speaking to me. Is it me or is it these records? And then then I, I put this on and it was literally like within a minute, I was like, fuck, I love this. Mm. Like, it just it's so fucking good. Yeah, so uh, which which track of theirs are we going to play? I I would recommend just the opening track off the record, just give people that same sense of, like, this is, this is the first blush. Because mm. it works really great at it. Sure. Okay, so this is the first track of that album. I don't know how to pronounce it. Mm. It's Dutch. Um... In fact, I don't even remember what the record is called. I know that Bloom? Bloom? Like Bloom? I I think it means Mm. Bloom. That's nice. I like that. But, and the first album is called Terra Mirror. I'm going to, wait. Let's, let's translate these real quick. Okay, so Bloom is Dutch for flower. Uh, that makes sense. And Delicate Wall is the the first track. It's Dutch for Delicate mm. Wall. But these guys actually have uh, a rack of records that are extremely good. Um, like De Ord, uh, which is the record that I got introduced to them with, is just a staggeringly beautiful album. It's two very long tracks. Um, these ones are a lot more manageable. They're like... 70 minutes long as opposed to like nearly 20 but this track is actually only five and a half minutes mm-hmm. fucking great cool okay so yeah here it is um come back next week uh we got um one of my favorite uh authors and critics i guess uh gretchen Faulkner, uh, Falker martin um she wrote an incredible piece on the um the controversy over the um, identifies attack helicopter uh, short story. Uh, she recommended a book I'd never heard of called The Earthquake Room. Um, I've dipped into it about 20 pages. It's mind-blowing, guys. It's really good. came out in like 2013 on a tiny little uh, small press. So I think we're going to be talking about that, about queer stuff, about... Um, and probably about small presses because there's a lot of good ones out there, and you y'all need to be um, reading more of them. You know, it kind of you can pr- pretty much ignore the like big five publishers at this point. Um, so, but here's a a beautiful springtime uh, slice of black metal before we get get to next week. Um, yep, yeah, keep following us. Give us more money. We'll read more terrible books for you. Here's flugger <laughs>